What's up, y'all? Welcome to class. This is Diseducation. My name is Mignon. I'm a Black non-binary teacher. And I'm a Vietnamese-American teacher named Quinn. Together, we are looking at what it's really like inside U.S. classrooms and schools through our eyes as teachers of color. In other words, what's happening behind closed classroom doors? Because the reality is that U.S. education is burning, and students and teachers of color are the ones on fire. This is Diseducation. Our lesson today is on how schools chew up teachers of color, but then spit them right out. This is the Broken Teacher Diversity Pipeline. So Quinn, let's go back to where it all started for us. You and I met when we were both hired at a public high school at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. And now we're a few years out from Zoom school, but joining a school community remotely was a big part of how I think we were basically bamboozled as teachers of color. In the throes of the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, it was a crazy time, so stressful. Everyone was adapting, adjusting, and it wasn't easy for anyone. But despite all of that, we thought the school and district that we were at was a pretty promising place to work. We thought we'd be there for the long haul. What gave you that impression? I mean, a huge part of it was the COVID response, how they were operating under remote learning. There seemed to be like real compassion for the students, a real trauma-informed approach to teaching. Yep. Um, and for teachers as well, not just students. I remember administrators were encouraging us to, you know, stop work at 3 p.m., don't check your email, your inbox anymore after school hours. And it really helped create barriers for us to create this work-life balance during, you know, a time with remote learning when people were burning, you know, the midnight oil. Yeah, I remember that we were highly encouraged to uh, limit lecture time, and that was across the board at our school. There was a lot more focus on spending time doing focused student support, right, doing small group work. We even had asynchronous Fridays. Amazing, bring it, them back. It was incredible. So students were working asynchronously offline on Fridays, while teachers were grading, were lesson planning, were collaborating with other teachers, and mm -hmm. were providing that kind of targeted one-on-one -on -one student intervention and support. Yeah. And I think as we talk about this, it's really important that you and I acknowledge that not all other teachers across the country or in the United States had this privilege. You know, I had a lot of teachers that I trained with in my teacher prep program who at the time of, right, you know, COVID was just starting. They had to teach fully synchronous while yeah. online um, on Zoom. They got no async days. They were expected to lecture for an hour and a half, two hours every mm -hmm. lesson, um, which isn't good for them. And it's definitely not good for the students. That's not how kids yeah. learn. <laughs> and then there were schools, too. A lot of them in the Midwest that literally had teachers coming in, teaching in class. The whole school was in person starting the fall. And I had teachers that were immunocompromised. They were going to lose their job if they didn't show up. Um, and they were getting sick the entire year. It was brutal. Yeah, I mean, it was a difficult year. There were a lot of challenges and there was harm. And it was difficult for students, for parents, for staff. And districts didn't have any easy or perfect choices to make. We can recognize that whatever feelings we have about the choices folks were making, there wasn't just some one right way or one good thing to do. It was hard on primary school teachers, on essential workers, on parents who fit into those categories and who were also all of a sudden doing homeschool support. It was hard on students who had higher academic support sure. needs and emotional support needs, right? So this was a challenging period. Mm -hmm. It was hard, but our first few months teaching remotely gave us hope that this new and uncertain landscape meant that our school, as well as others, were able to reimagine the way students learn. And we thought we'd found a place that was at least going to try to start mitigating 
the kind of harm that inevitably comes from the education system. If we're being completely honest, so many of the steps we saw the district take, we thought were stemming from anti-oppressive work. The results were more equitable, and we thought we were seeing change in practice. But that was not actually true. And being online, you and I as teachers of color were insulated from so much of that kind of day-to-day workplace racism that exists in schools too. Fuck yeah, no happy hours. That's right. (laughs) Pretty quickly, the mask started slipping, literally and figuratively. People were starting to clamor for no mask during a pandemic, and the school started to reveal itself for what it really was. And what was being revealed was that as a teacher of color being hired anywhere, we have to think about how racist is this institution? Yeah. As teachers of color, we are hyper aware of the racial climate in a school because it's a matter of survival. Yep. Keeping in mind, by the way, that I think you and I have pretty realistic expectations, right, of what U.S. schools are like. We're not looking for some kind of utopic uh, school that absolutely has no racism at all, but we are looking for schools that are trying to mitigate the harm. What helped you start to see beneath that figurative mask? (laughs) I mean, diversity week? (laughs) I mean, the honest truth is that if a school has diversity week, then you know they're probably not actually committed to diversity and equity every day of the week. Yeah, something that helped me start to see what was really going on was how upset teachers got about the camera policy. They wanted to mandate cameras on for students. During remote learning. Exactly. And it was all about this kind of ease for teachers. And the school at first said, no, we can't mandate it. And then the school backtracked and said, actually, teachers, you are allowed to mandate cameras on in your classes. Meanwhile, many of the same teachers who were fussing about, I want to be able to make students turn on their cameras for the same ones in staff meetings with their cameras off. Yeah, and I think it was pretty inconsistent policy because we had months of like, you don't have to turn on camera. This Mm -hmm. was like nearly spring semester by the time they made that change. I mean, it really showed that administrators were prioritizing ease and convenience for teachers over the agency and privacy of students. The way I resisted, I mean, I fucking turned that camera off during every staff meeting the entire fucking year (laughs) afterwards. I mean, it's not just that. Like, I think you're onto something where it's not just about ease and convenience. It was about control. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what made it, it just made it feel so icky. Yeah. Another thing that helped me start to see with this community, what our school was really like, were the amount of Fs that were being handed out during distance learning. Yeah. You know, you you work summer school. Exactly. And so I was doing what was essentially credit recovery classes during the summer for students for English. And it seemed like in the summer I worked that almost half of the English summer school students were from one teacher. So we're seeing no compassion, Mm. no support, just Fs, and that being tacitly accepted by the school community. Now, that year was really sad when, you know, by the end of remote learning, we had counselors, if you remember, Mm -hmm. coming up to us telling us that we were a rarity, that we were given accommodations to students during the pandemic that, quite frankly, a lot of other teachers weren't offering at all. Yeah, exactly. And that was just really disheartening to hear. Yeah. I mean, other things I can think of, too, that made me start feeling like, oh, this place that I thought was okay, especially when I started in remote learning, might be a little sus. <laughs> the union, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty toothless. I felt like there were a lot of union decisions that were being made that didn't necessarily match up with what rank and file members wanted. Yep. And I think a lot of these examples that we're listing here reflect the inconsistent policies and lack of structures communicating that maybe this school is not as committed to anti-oppressive work as we thought. Which isn't terribly shocking because this is the United States, but (laughs) we're certainly starting to pay attention to it. I 
what really began to confirm for us that, hey, our school is not what it purported itself to be, was this professional development. Oh, my God. Yeah. You remember this. So this was a professional development program. This is when we became friends. Right, which teachers called PD, which was, you know, their kind of facsimile of racial justice. By the time that PD happened, I already had some clues from, from teams I worked on that, hey, there's some racism stuff showing up. But this PD showed me that the school wasn't just going to be irritating in these kind of low-level ways, but was actually harmful to us as teachers of color. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I think back to that day, some of the things I remember was, I mean, didn't they completely outsource the entire professional development and the work to, yep. to another organization? Yeah. Which, of course, like, we don't want in community to be doing this. We don't want staff members to be doing this. We want to hire some outsider who doesn't know the teacher, doesn't know the students or the school or community. Um, and like, it was just a weird day. It felt like this organization was treating us like we're middle schoolers on a summer camp and they were mm-hmm. camp counselors that were just reading off a pamphlet. Mm-hmm. And what you said about you know these outsiders who don't know the teachers, don't know the students, that really is just so important, right? When we're bringing in these outsiders, they don't know what the needs of the community are. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, this kind of camp counselor vibe is what happens when you have white people leading racial justice work with no training, with no understanding, right? It's a mess. It was useful being able to talk to you. Mm. We started texting. Yeah, uh, we did. During the PD. It was the only way to stay sane. Because, you know, the PD was bad. It wasn't the worst meeting I've ever sat in. So I'm thinking to myself, is it really that bad? I start gaslighting myself. No one else seems to be having a problem, so am I the one tripping? Yeah. But being able to talk to another teacher of color, it's like, okay, I'm not losing it here. No, we're not crazy. This is Weird undertones. not right. Yeah. I mean, like, okay, I know this is small. This is going to sound ridiculous. But come on. Like, they were playing uh, for, you know, for the playlist, like, Britney Spears and Nickelback. <laughs> like, that's embarrassing. Oh, my God. They didn't have affinity groups. Like, quite frankly, we shouldn't have been there. <laughs> yep. Yep. Why do you bring up the music? I feel like music is actually so representative of how you can actually authentically, like, prioritize other people and their backgrounds and their heritage and who they are as a full human being in whatever space you're in. Like, I know as teachers, we put a lot of thought into the music that we include in our classroom. Mm -hmm. So always thinking about, oh, like, what are our students' background? Taking into account all our students' demographics, we get student input and choice. Mm -hmm. Music is actually really representative. Oh, are you actually seeing me as human? Mm -hmm. Are you connecting with me or are you not? Mm -hmm. And in a PD... It can race. They're yeah. just playing white artists. It yep. can be one note, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, there was also this comment that the trainers made that really just kind of broke things down for me. So the trainers said that teachers don't have the time or energy to reflect on their bias. And I stopped and said, What? These trainers were giving permission to white teachers to choose whether or not to deal with their bias. Yeah, they're giving them an out, an excuse. The ethical choice is always to deal with bias. And then they follow this stuff up with quotes from Gandhi. Oh my God, yeah. (laughs) It's like, why do we have someone who's been openly racist in this PD about racism? And not just racist, right? But like he had a background of taking advantage of his younger female nieces under, you know, what he, what was termed celibacy tests. What? I, I actually know. did not know that. What? 
But I mean, I think it just shows, right, like these pat quotes that they're getting from the internet that they're just throwing out into professional development. It's just giving like white suburban mom doing live, laugh, love quotes and just like throwing that out there into like PD, like we did our job. We're done. Yeah. Like how are we sitting here while supposedly professional development facilitators are bringing in quotes from like quotefancy.com. Brady quotes. (laughs) Literally and have not even Googled the person that they're quoting. You think they might have just done that because like they were already on Google. Literally. And it just shows that the knowledge of equity work is so bottom of the barrel. There's no deep thought. There's no study. There's no interrogation. There's no research. There's nothing. But these are the people who are supposed to be helping guide teachers. Yeah. It's pretty clear they were untrained. Horribly so. (laughs) And then like, you know, everything we've been talking about is like what generally happened. This was at the beginning of the professional development. Mm -hmm. And it ended with them placing us into breakout rooms. Oh, God. If you remember. Yeah. But these like super like, you know, personal, supposedly deep questions. One of them being like, what did you first learn that racism existed? Or questions like, you know, George Floyd protests that just happened that summer. How did it affect you? Questions like that. And I remember I was placed in a room with two other white male teachers Great recipe. Um, (laughs) And I thought, you know, like at the beginning, being at the school, that I could be a little bit more honest about my thoughts on racism. Like I still was keeping like a tight lid on a lot of it, but I thought, okay, like let's try being a little bit more honest here than previous workplaces I've been at. Mm -hmm. This is a different vibe, or at least they're selling a different vibe. Let's try. Mm -hmm. And so I remember when responding to these questions, I told them that it was incredibly frustrating for me to have my friends and my colleagues come to me after, right, George Floyd was murdered in the ensuing protest, telling me that they had never, ever thought about racism, ever, or talked or thought about the concept of race because it, frankly, never affected their lives. Um, and I remember like, how angry that made me feel all the time because these people that are around me all the time, they get to not think about it, but I have to live it every day. Mm-hmm. And crickets tripped after that. Yeah. Like, nobody talked. It was so awkward. Yeah, and and these teachers who you're in the room with who are saying they never thought about race, the state of California has decided that they are qualified to teach the youth. Mm-hmm. How is that qualified? And not just that, like I felt like me kind of honestly saying how I felt in that moment, when I was asked to state how I honestly felt, actually created conflict and disrupted possible relationships between me and other teachers. It's a recipe for either masking, not being honest, not being upfront which means that you're hanging students of color out to dry because it will impact them. Or the other option is conflict. Doing what you did and creating a a moment of conflict and disrupting that relationship with those teachers. I actually never thought of it. So it's like you kind of only have two choices, which is either conflict or masking. And either way, you're actually harmed because we know as people of color, right, masking comes with a cost. Exactly. And throughout this PD, there was no thoughtful space for teachers of color. There were no protective measures for us at all yeah and the part that like just like it's like you know the extra cherry on top teachers walked away from this thinking like they did so good they were so vulnerable which teachers which teachers white you know the white (laughs) teachers they were patting themselves on the back they were like oh my gosh I like wasn't really feeling it when I came in today but I'm so glad I had this right this this session I feel like I've learned so much the fact that some teachers thought that was such a great training is a huge red flag Shitty racial justice work can be harmful. And they couldn't even see it was shitty, much less see the harm that was happening in the room. You know, it was infuriating to see a school district spend thousands of dollars on what was essentially some race 101 bullshit led by people 
who are not qualified and who did a piss poor job. And it showed some really fucked priorities, right? Rushing to do racial professional development. And by racial professional development, I literally mean professional development that purports to deal in some way with race. Because mm. oftentimes it's not even getting to justice or equity, right? Yeah. <laughs> but rushing to do any I mean, of that. I uh, mean, to be fair, oftentimes it doesn't have to be with race. Usually you come in and like, let's just talk about our backgrounds, our experiences, our identities. Like they don't even get uh-huh. to race, just to they be just clear. They say culture is a wonderful thing. What, what do you mean by culture? Huh? <laughs> We've all been raised in different <laughs> geographic locations, like shit like that. Yeah. So rushing to do this kind of training is not a real or effective commitment. And it puts us as teachers of color in harm's way and doesn't actually help our white teacher co-workers interrogate their racism. The breakout room you described with those white teachers talking about how they'd never thought about race was ridiculous. I was in breakout rooms where these white women teachers were just talking about- They cried. They cried. How (laughs) horrifying it was to see these things on the news and they just cried and they just can't believe the world is And And they're making you dry their tears. I come to work to work, not to be these white women's therapy session. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it makes you wonder, like, how can we stay engaged when white quote unquote experts are giving a whitewashed racial justice professional development at our expense and at the expense of students of color? It feels like a slap in the face. You know, my sister always says, when you're in these situations, just take the meat and spit out the bones. But it's really hard to take the meat and spit out the bones when the bones are designed to kill you when the bones are designed to hurt the students you care about. The reality is that you and I felt protected by the Zoom format as teachers of color, particularly attending that professional development from home, right? We could have our cameras off, and when the training was over, we could log off. We didn't have to mm-hmm. walk out of an auditorium. Didn't have to keep that people. poker face on. Exactly. And chat with a bunch of folks who basically just communicated that they've never even thought about our humanity. And that's really not unusual for this kind of professional development. But again, this was mediated by that remote structure. And the thing is, our students of color also experienced some of that protection, right? No, for sure. Students of color had a taste of what's possible with this distance learning format. And so it sounds positive, but that's actually really disheartening. Yeah, I mean, some examples, though, so that our listeners can can kind of understand. I mean, we had Black and Latina students come to us telling us that during a remote year, they felt like more of them were being recommended for honors classes versus mm-hmm. during in-person, which yeah. is crazy. And those recommendations are often based on the relationships as well as grades. Mm-hmm. I remember having Asian-American students telling me that for the first time ever, they weren't being docked points because teachers felt like they were participating in like Zoom chats and et cetera. Mm-hmm. But they felt for some reason during in-person classes, their words, their presence was always being kind of erased or ignored. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing, too, is a lot of the Asian-American students that we had, they were telling us um, that they actually got help. That when they were in school in person, they felt like a lot of teachers assumed that they understood things when they didn't or ignored them when they needed help versus wow. other students. And when it was um, right on Zoom remote, um, teachers were actually responding to them when they said, I don't understand this. Wow. Yeah. And black male students in particular were talking about how they have the best relationship with teachers during that distance learning year. And these are black male students who were exclusively keeping their cameras, cameras off. off. 
So without the visual presence of a black male body, these teachers were able to finally build relationships with black male students. Which honestly, fucked up. Yeah. All right, Quinn, let's backtrack a little bit. In the beginning, we said that we thought our school might be an okay place to work because we saw what we thought were some anti-oppressive policies. Now, you and I do understand that the U.S. education system is racist and yeah. is intentionally designed that way. So what was it that made you think this school was potentially a good place to work? For me, it started with the hiring process. You know, I'd like to be able to say that there are these red flags I look for and then these green flags I look for when I interview at a school. But the reality is that for teachers of color, there are no green flags. Teachers of color just having to choose between the lesser of the evils. We're just trying to find a place that's mitigating harm. That's so true. When we're looking at a potential school as teachers of color, the best we can hope for is somewhere that's mitigating harm. And we've said this phrase before. It's depressing, but it's the truth. So when we're thinking about harm mitigation and red flags, what were you looking for? I mean, some of the things I look for when I interview at a school is, right, who is in the interview process? Is it all white faces, <laughs> right? Are any of the administrators people of color? What about, you know, are they including staff members there? Because it shows that they value egalitarianism. I think it means a lot when a school is including, right, just regular teachers and they get a say in who they get to work with. Mm -hmm. um, other things I look for too is, you know, the questions they're asking. Are they asking questions about diversity, about inclusion, that show that they are committed to, you know, anti-racist work? At least at the school we were working at, I was hearing things. I was hearing things like, oh, we value diverse texts, questions on me and my ability to teach English learners to accommodate students with disabilities. Yeah, something that I'm often looking for um, are the questions around classroom management and behavior. So if I'm getting a lot of questions from them on how I manage a classroom, on behavior matrices, things like that, that can clue me in that there might be a focus on that kind of control and domination that we're often talking about. Which isn't too far off from school to prison pipeline. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I pay a lot of attention as well to the reactions to um, my answers. Like, I come fully myself at these interviews. Like, I come crunk as fuck. Because, um, I mean, I don't want to work at a place that's not going to accept who I am and my ethos as a teacher. Um, so I noticed, like, are they stiffening their body language, blank stares? Do they change, right, like, their orientation towards me or not? I'm looking at all of these things because um, you got to know, right, are they being resistant? And are they being defensive? Am I being challenged? You know, this makes me think of, I have elders who always say, you know, you never want to commit to a partner until you've seen them mad. It's kind mm. of that same thing, right? We want to come in these interviews and we say the most radical beliefs we have yeah. about this profession and about our pedagogy to see. All right, yeah. how do you react? What's... What's what's what inklings are we getting here? <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, what I saw in the interview was head nodding, right? There were verbal affirmations. There were stories from other teachers of how they were implementing the same things in their classroom. Um, and lots of affirmation to my talk about unlearning, right? Um, unlearning harmful narratives of cognitive dissonance being a healthy thing for students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also I was assessing, right, how they answer my questions and bringing questions myself that I hoped would help me identify whether or not there were red flags or not that match with my priorities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also pay a lot of attention to where they're putting their money as a yeah. district and as a school site, yeah. right? Because at the end of the day, money talks. Yeah. And I feel like the school you're working at, too, like, at least in the interview, they were telling me that they were investing all this money in diverse texts. So you and I are English language arts teachers. We care about the books we get to teach. Mm -hmm. And hearing all this money being funneled in, we were like, okay, that, that sounds decent. Exactly. 
I'm also always interested in autonomy around curriculum um, and kind of that balance of oversight in yeah. order to bring in a real diversity of perspectives. And what I was hearing sounded very, very encouraging. Yeah. And so I thought to myself, okay, hey, this might be a great place to work. For all its faults, I will say the school we taught at, I probably had the most amount of autonomy over my curriculum mm -hmm. um, compared to any place I've ever taught at before. Mm -hmm. And they seemed to really value student input and agency. You know, they included actual students on the school board in actual committees where decisions are affecting the school and the community. Concepts like Wellness Week. You know, Wellness Week doesn't really strike me as a green flag, but that might be because I'm from here. So I'm from the San yes. Francisco Bay Area and we had Wellness Week when I was in school. Yeah, that's fair. For the listeners who don't know, I come from the Midwest, so this was new to me and mm. I thought it was pretty cool. Exactly. In person, you realize Wellness Week, like no teachers actually participate and the students aren't <laughs> even in school. Exactly. And the other thing that we saw because we were joining while distance learning was getting underway was what seemed to be a very student-centered approach to COVID response based on what they'd done the past spring. And that was really encouraging. Yeah. And there was a huge focus as well in the interviews, if I remember, on collaboration and mentorship. Mm -hmm. You know, I asked them because I've worked at places where teachers were given a lot of time to collaborate. And I loved that experience. And I said, hey, I'm looking for that here. What does it look like? They said there were legacy projects I'd be signed up for where I'd be working with teachers from other subjects, right? Interdisciplinary work. I was loving that. And that they paired me up with a veteran uh, mentor to help me because, you know, I'm, I'm still in my beginning years of teaching. Mm -hmm. A little did I know those two things would be the very reason why I would end up leaving yeah. in the end. They did talk a lot about being a place that was going to help support teachers growth, that there was a place that had a lot of room for us. But it was all a dream. <laughs> no, but seriously, you know, it really was all a farce. And unfortunately, we don't know till we know. Right. It's very mm -hmm. hard to see these things until you're in it. Yeah, like we should have known it was too good to be true. But unfortunately, we're not the only teachers of color who've been whiplashed like this. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a RAND study that surveyed over a thousand teachers nationwide during the 2020 to 21 school year. And it said that 23% of all teachers were seriously thinking of quitting the profession. But over half of all black teachers were thinking of the same. That's more than double. And what we've been chronicling here albeit in a bit of a non-linear way, is this broken teacher diversity pipeline. The broken teacher diversity pipeline shows all the ways that teachers of color are shafted at every stage of teaching preparation and career. But this process that chronicles the way that teachers of color go into more debt to attend teacher prep programs, mm -hmm. how racist standardized tests prevent access into the profession, how the unpaid labor while paying tuition for a year of student teaching prevents teachers of color from joining the profession, and yeah. how the racism in schools pushes teachers of color out of the profession prematurely. That pipeline that's studied doesn't actually show the how. No. It just shows the results from those things. Yeah. It shows what it looks like at every stage but it doesn't show the process that produces this inequity, right? In other words, what harm do teachers of color face in school buildings that push them out of education? And we know that teachers of color go through several stages in their career, and it starts with this honeymoon period. Mm. 
we've got the hiring the first couple months for us. That was first couple months on Zoom and distance learning. And, you know, this is when teachers of color are being wined and dined. It's that kind of charm offensive, especially during hiring where districts and schools really put it on thick. Oh, we're so great. Yeah. We're not like these other schools. We're focused on all the things you're focused on. Not like other men. (laughs) It's very that not like other men. I'm a good guy, you know, vibe. Yeah. And then you hit stage two which is reality. This is where, you know, things start looking a little suspicious. The camera policy was changed. Um, Students, right, were being failed during the pandemic. This is when the rose-colored glasses comes off and you start really seeing, you know, your your partner for their real self. I mean, you realize that, oh, I might just be a tokenized mascot at this institution and microaggressions are starting to come out of the woodwork. I love that you fully committed to the metaphor of a partner here (laughs) because it works. Mm. Especially when you're talking about the kind of tokenization of microaggressions. Yeah. And, and also, like, you know, I think at this stage, you're not leaving yet this relationship or this institution. You're trying to make it work. You're seeing all these problems. You're like, okay, let's try to pop problem solve. How can I be strategic about it? How can I maybe have conversations about it? You know, you haven't decided to leave yet. And then those attempts to figure out how do we make this work, then comes the response. Mm. And this is where institutions deny, deflect, and do everything they can to avoid responsibility for the racist harm happening in school buildings. And it's a very gaslighty effect. Yeah, not just no gaslighting, one... kind of triangulation, right? And the pitting people against each other. Exactly, exactly. It's a, no, people aren't being racist. That policy is not racist. No one treats anyone like that here in this community. And you're yeah. sitting there scratching your head like, well, wait a minute. Yeah, why is this a problem for you? The other Asian American teacher has no problem with that. Mm-hmm. 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 And then it culminates in retaliation, the final stage. This is where teachers of color are targeted, attacked, and retaliated against. It's almost like a narcissist is acting as if you're the problem and they're the victim, right? Yeah. They're saying, oh, what, what have we done? Why are you attacking us with these accusations? This is where they deem that you're not a culture fit, right? They're thinking, oh, you're not who I thought you were. Yeah, meaning you're not amenable to what I'm doing. Yeah, you're not someone we can step over. Mm-hmm. Damn, this really is an abusive relationship. Oh, up. man. And stay tuned for the... <laughs> story of response and retaliation we'll that's the, entire the rest season. of the season yeah but if you think about it what we've just discussed is really the problem women of color in the workplace framework um, that was developed by the center for community organizations that has been widely publicized and when we apply this framework to teacher of color retention it actually fills in what's missing from the broken teacher diversity pipeline it answers the how So much of what we've talked about this episode, microaggressions and more during professional development, schools doing a bait and switch after hiring, and that antagonistic relationship that so many schools have toward educators who are committed to equity, all of these things began to show us what our school is really about. We found out quick and in a hurry that we were the problem women of color. And I'm not even a woman. (laughs) And once we went back in person from distance learning... It all got really real. AKA when the Fire Nation attacked. (laughs) Next class, we'll be talking about some of the things we saw when we returned in-person teaching. Timeliness, tardiness, and deadlines. School holidays. Quantity versus quality curriculum. Emphasis on objective impartiality. Seniority and hierarchy above all else. More essays, more homework, more assessments. Segregation of resource students and English learner students. Lightness over everything else. Norming of whiteness. Protecting white teachers over students of color. Denial of bias and racism. 
and stereotypes and microaggressions. Damn, that's white supremacy. If this episode sparked something for you, email us at diseducationpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at DisEdOfficial. Check out the poll in our bio or in the show notes. Subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Finally, thank you to Anthony Hernandez at The Grill Studio for engineering this episode. And thank you for listening. Next time, we'll be discussing how schools greenwash their racism. See you next class.